one. Uh, we are glad to continue here in our study in the book of Exodus. Next week, uh, I will not be here. I've got a guest speaker lined up, a member of our mission up in spring, uh, Brother Mitchell. I know that you will enjoy him. Uh, he'll be here, so we'll be taking a break from Exodus, but we will be back, and hopefully the timing will work out well that the we will be to Passover for Easter and everything will work out, and it'll all make lots of sense, uh, unless I get the flu or something, and then we'll just have to skip some plagues or something. I don't know. So it is uh, good to see everybody. I hope that everybody got a chance to appreciate our nice new ramp. Uh, Brother LD came and built that this week, uh, you know, the church had voted at our last business meeting to put in a wheelchair ramp in the front, or as I like to call it, a baby stroller ramp, because that's what I think it's most useful for. Um, we've got a lot of, you know, I think they did an excellent job. We'll go out there, we'll do some lattice on the base of it and stain it a little bit and make it look nice, but you have to let uh, new wood dry out. You're supposed to let treated wood dry out before you stain it or anything. Uh, so we need to give that a little bit of time that I think it's already been used. And so that's just fantastic. We always need to make it as easy as possible for kids to get hurt on their bicycles. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's not, what, that's not how it's intended to be used, but that was a prophecy that I was making. I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but it is, uh, we're, we've got to figure out some way to put a a rail on the window side, because all I can imagine every time I look at that ramp is some kid riding their bicycle and going through that window. And uh, so we're going to put some kind of a metal railing across there on the handrail on the window side to keep kids in, uh, because I was a little boy once, and I know when I see a ramp and I've got a bicycle, what I see. And uh, it's not for wheelchairs or strollers or anything else. I think that's a bicycle ramp. I think every ramp is a bicycle ramp. And so we're going to have to do that. That's one thing that we're going to have to consider. But I know it's going to be a help to a lot of you who uh, need it and just um, not for your hopping your bicycles on. So. When we left Moses last, he was a failure. He was an embarrassment. He was a disgrace. Everything that God had intended for Moses to do, he had blown up out of the water. <laughs> Moses started out so well. You know, God has accomplished something new in him. He's rescued him from the hand of Pharaoh. He's been pulled out of the basket. He's been raised in Egypt. He's got all these things going for him. He's got the education. He's got the political power. He's got the plan and the timing of God on his side. But there is one thing that sabotages all of that, and that is Moses' impatience. Moses decides he wants to do the right thing, but he wants to do it his way and not God's way. So when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he goes, murders the Egyptian, hides his body in the sand, and is exposed. You remember the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he told them, why are you striking your brother? And the one said, what? Who made you a king and a prince over us, a ruler and a judge over us? said, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses knew that his sin had been exposed, and he went on the run. He left, went to Midian, where he got married, and has now been, at the time that we pick up our text today, living for 40 years. Moses is now an 80-year-old man, and his whole life has passed him by. The Israelites are still slaves in Egypt and have been for 430 years. 
And Moses, the one who seemed like he was going to be their deliverer, has now been hiding. And as we see in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Here is your great hero. Your hero is not a military general. He's not a great speaker. He is a shepherd. You say, well, at least he's working hard. Well, he's not even a shepherd of his own sheep. He is keeping his father-in-law's flock. We don't know how old his father-in-law was, of course, at that time. It was not at all uncommon for men to marry women who were substantially younger than them, so Jethro may not be much older than Moses. But nevertheless, how would you like to, at 80 years old, be working for your father-in-law? I don't, I don't see a lot of hands bouncing up, okay? You imagine when Moses went home at night, the conversations that he had with his wife. You know, she said, well, how'd you do today? Well, your dad was getting on to me again. I'm a grown man. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> you imagine the way, the kind of dynamic, the family dynamic that would play out in that. Well, you say, at least he's working. And look, his father-in-law is a priest, But the deliverer of Israel is not working for an Israelite priest. He's working for a pagan priest. He's married into a pagan family because of his fear. And now he's stuck. You know, the Bible gives one requirement for who you marry. It's kind of interesting. For us in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it was set up a little differently. But for us in the New Testament, God gives you one requirement about who you marry. It's not uh, what like how much money they have. You know, you need to pick somebody on the same status. Uh, It's not somebody who has the same sense of humor as you, whatever. It's not somebody who's the same race as you. That's going to be offensive. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, marry whoever you want, only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians says, the one requirement for somebody getting married is that the person that they marry be a Christian. Well, why is that? Because if you marry somebody that's not a Christian, it's like you have a car with two engines going in different directions. It's not going to be a successful thing. Um, I've I've told you this before. When Colleen and I went uh, kayaking, we were out in the lake, and uh, we thought, oh, this will be fun. So I give her one oar, and I take the other oar, and we do this for, goodness, 30, 45 seconds before I say, hey, why don't you let me hold both of the oars? Because as long as Colleen had one oar in the water, and I had one oar in the water, basically she was dragging us, and we were going in little circles. <laughs> I said, it's probably easier for me to do both of them so that we can keep them in sync with each other, so we can go in the same direction. Do you know that your marriage can be like that? You know, if you are trying to follow God and you're oaring as hard as you can, you know, and your spouse is dragging their oar in the water, <laughs> you've got a problem. And so you get stuck and you twist and twist and twist and twist. Now, I also ought to say that the Bible does say that if you're already in a situation where you're married to a non-Christian, he says, don't divorce them because your witness is the best chance of bringing them to Christ. That's also in 1 Corinthians. So that's, that's all neither here nor there, except to say that Moses has gotten far away from the plan of God. And one thing that you all know and that I know is that one sin leads to another that you start out being impatient, trying to do things in your own way. You get out of God's plan for you. And then next thing you know, you're involved in some other sin and some other sin and some other sin. (laughs) Once you get out of God's plan for your life, there's no telling what else you're going to do. 
There are things that you would have thought that you would never even touch that become a central part of your life because sin is pervasive. The Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like yeast working its way through dough. So Moses, who once was this great, brave deliverer, who in faith expected God to do something through him, because he started out trying to do things his way, he's now a completely different man. He's a shadow of the man that he was. So he's out there keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. Horeb probably refers to the mountain range. Sinai is the tallest mountain in the range, but sometimes it calls it Horeb. Sometimes it calls it Sinai. So he comes, he's just leading his uh, father-in-law's flock. He's coming around. He's on the far side of the desert and he comes to Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a title for Jesus. The New Testament, that's not the case. Greek works a little differently than Hebrew. But in the Old Testament, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, it's, it's God himself come down in a physical manifestation. So it's, it's Jesus before he became a man. And we, I'll, I'll prove that to you a little bit more in just a second. But the angel of the Lord, so Jesus himself appears in, the, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So he turns and he looks, and he sees this bush. And of course, the bush is on fire, but the bush is not burning up. It's a strange thing for a bush to do. So Moses decides to stop and look. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. Uh, as kind of an interesting thing. Biblical Hebrew does not have a word for thought. And so sometimes you'll hear in biblical Hebrew, it'll say, uh, Moses said, and you'll think, well, that's an awfully strange thing for him to say, uh, but they didn't have a word for he thought it. And so it means he expressed it. It was his, his word. He said, I'll turn and I'll see this great sight why the bush is not burned. Verse four, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So Moses stops, he starts to come near this bush, and out of this bush comes a voice, Moses, Moses. Now, a bush that is on fire and does not burn is a strange bush. A bush that knows your name is a stranger bush, okay? A bush that can talk, that's the kind of bush that you stop to look at for a little bit. So he hears, of course, God speaking to him out of the bush and calls him out by his name. And Moses says, uh, literally, uh, you know, the am is in italics in your Bible. Literally, the Hebrew is behold me like, right here. Uh, probably, oh, me. And the voice, God says, take off your shoes. Don't come any closer until you take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. Let's set this scene up a little bit. You are Moses. 
You are an 80-year-old man. You have been wandering around leading your father-in-law's flock in the desert. All the plans that you thought that God had for you to go out and deliver the people are long gone. It's been 40 years since that crossed your mind. You say, I'm too old to do anything for God. It's too late. I already blew it. I just better resign myself to this retirement of leading sheep around. It's too late for me to do anything that really matters, so I better just get comfortable. I better just meet my physical needs and everything else is going to be all right. Now, some of you may be in a situation just like that. You say, well, you know, I've served my time. Of course, that's not how it works. There's no, no retirement in the Lord's army. Some of you, uh, maybe whatever age you are, you think that you've done something or done, you know, somehow disqualified yourself from being able to serve God. Maybe you killed an Egyptian and hit his body in the sand. Probably not. Probably whatever it is you think you did comes up way short of that. But you have maybe shut yourself out from God's service. You just kind of, you know, you float along. But don't ever do anything that really matters. That's well, my prayer that today, that out of the midst of the burning bush, God would call you by name and call you out of your complacency into his service, into doing something that really matters. What does the burning bush represent? Why does God appear to him in a burning bush? This is kind of neat. One example that we're going to see, you kind of see several things that can be represented by a burning bush. The nation of Israel is so frail like a bush, right? They're dry, they're helpless, they complain, they fall into sin over and over again. But when God's leading them through the wilderness, what's right in their midst is a pillar of fire, the presence of God. So you've got human frailty colliding with the presence of God. Later on, that's going to get uh, even more intense. There's going to be something called the faithful remnant in Israel. That means there's some people that'll still be following God, but most of the country won't. That faithful remnant will be sawn in half and executed and all kinds of things for trying to follow God. They'll be so weak, but the fire of God will burn in them. And then they'll be able to speak for God and represent God just like this burning bush. But of course, the biggest example, and I think the most important, is who is this that's speaking? Oh, it's Jesus. What is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the God-man. How much, how was Jesus like a bush? Well, he was broken, he was beaten, he was crushed. But at the same time, he was full of the fire of divinity. If I had a bush and it was burning, there would be no part of that bush that was not fire. And there'd be no part of that fire that was not bush. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying there, is in the trunk of the bush, if you were looking at a bush on fire, the trunk of it, you would say, well, that's just the trunk. But if you could really see, then there's the heat of the fire dancing within that trunk. And around it in the flames, you say, well, that's all fire, that's no bush. But if you could see, if you had a microscope, you could see pieces of bush dancing in the fire. There is no part of the fire that's not bush, no part of the bush that's not fire. Jesus, the God-man... There is no part of the man Jesus that is not God. And there is no part of the God Jesus that is not man. He's not, Jesus is not half man, half God. 
He's fully man and fully God. He, out of the frailty of humanity, speaks the fire of God's presence. So the burning bush is a, a picture of Jesus. It's a type of Jesus. And so you come and you see this mixture, this inner mingling of power and weakness. So you say, when Jesus was on the cross, he was obviously very human right then. He was so human that he died. But at the same time, no one but God himself could lay his life down and have it matter. So his divinity is there too, even though you can't see it as clearly. When Jesus rose again, you see his godness there. Acts said it was impossible for death to hold him. But at the same time, his humanity is there because he rises up as the new Adam, as the progenitor of a new race. And so in every way, you see both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. He's not part God, part man. He's all God and all man, just like this bush is all bush and all fire. And so Moses is here confronted with Jesus himself coming, showing power and frailty mixed And when he faces that, when he comes there, he says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Now, you could go find this site. You could go to Mount Sinai. They they don't know for sure which mountain it is. Uh, There are tour guides who are very confident when they're taking you to the mountain that they want to take you to. They say, yes, this is Mount Sinai. I saw one of my friends uh, is in Israel and was posting some pictures about different sites they went to, and they said, this is Jacob's well. This is the same well that Jacob drank from and the same well that uh, Jesus sat by in John 4, and then I drank from it. Well, that's a very bold claim for you know, a territory that was under Muslim control for a 1,000 years, and then they found the right well again. So they, they, there's a lot of, when you, when you go to the Holy Land, there's a lot of really suspicious you know, places where there's somebody who found out they could make some money by telling you this was a particular site. Uh, the... The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the, where the, the supposed empty tomb is, uh, was actually Constantine's mom said she had a vision and this was the spot and they built it there. There's no historical evidence to suggest that that's it. The garden tomb is much more likely. So maybe you can't go to Sinai. But you say, well, there's five, or di- there's five different mountains that could be Mount Sinai. Let's go and let's compare the mountains. Do you know that today there is nothing special about that mountain? There's nothing different in the dirt. What made it holy ground? It was that God was there. When we're here, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Right now, you are sitting in holy ground. When we leave, it's just a building. What makes this place special is nothing made out of bricks and wood. It's the presence of God there. What made this ground special was not the mixture of different kinds of stone. It was the presence of Jesus there. So he said, take off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. So Moses comes up to him. Moreover, he said, verse 6, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses covers up his face and won't look at this bush 
because he realizes that it's a theophany. It is an appearance of God. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting here. We saw it before when we were back in Genesis. And God spoke to Jacob and he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. But at that point, he was not Jacob's God. When God here speaks to Moses, he does not say, I am your God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He says, I'm the God of your father. Moses has gotten far from God. He's married a Midianite priest. He's wandered around. He has gotten far from the God of his fathers. But God has not gotten far from him. So again, maybe you feel like you're disqualified, like you can't do it. But God says, look, I still know you, even though you've abandoned me. I heard a preacher give this story. He said that there was an old man and an old woman riding in his truck. And they saw a young couple in the truck next to them with the, the, you know, the girl sitting on the middle seat leaning up on the, the husband driving or the boyfriend driving or whatever. And the old, the old woman turned to the old man and said, you know, we never sit, we, we used to be so close like that. And the old man said, well, I didn't move. <laughs> He said, you know, I'm still in the driver's seat. I'm still right where I've been the whole time. When you look at God and you say, you know, I just, I just feel so far from God. It's not because God has gone on vacation, right? The movement has not been on God's side. So although... God does not say, I am your God. God still knows his name and still calls out to Moses. So who needs to make the correction? Well, you say, you know, I just don't have faith like I used to have. That's an interesting thing. And it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous little cycle. Marvelous in the sense, not of great, but in the sense of causes you to marvel. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when you sin, do you know what happens when you're doing something you shouldn't do or not doing something you should do? You don't see God as clearly. And when you don't see God as clearly, it becomes easier to sin. And then you sin some more so you don't see God as clearly. And eventually your heart is callous. Your heart is rocked over. And you know, people know that. You know that in your life, if you go back to the place where you felt like you started to get far from God, it starts with your behavior. Every time you say, you know, I just don't feel, you know, the faith that I used to have. So, well, let's look back and let's look at it. Did you start losing the faith that you thought you had first, or did you start doing things that you shouldn't do first? I've never met anybody who was being honest that could say that they lost their faith first and then their behavior crumbled. Your behavior gives a little bit, and then your faith drops a little bit. And then your behavior gives a little more, and your faith drops a little more, until eventually you can't hear God. So, he says, I'm the God of your father's. And I'm calling out to you. Moses hid his face. He's afraid to look on God. He recognizes he's in the presence of holiness. He knows that he cannot see the fullness of God and live. So he hides his face. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I just, I don't know. It's probably very interesting to go through and underline the verbs in this verse and the next one. You get a little bit of insight into the character of God. He says, first, I've seen their affliction. 
He says, I've heard their cry, and I know their sorrows. You know, that's just as true for you as it is for the Israelites. God says, I've seen your affliction. I recognize what's happening to you. I've heard your cry. I haven't just seen it. I just don't know about it, but I know I've heard how it's hurting you. And then I know their sorrows. That's a little, that's more than I've heard or I've seen. Because I know what you're feeling. And how did God know what they were feeling? Well, of course, because for God, all of time is laid out together. And so he knew what it was like to be a servant because he would become a servant. He knew what it was like to be mistreated because he would be mistreated. He knew what it was like to lose your life to an oppressive state because he would lose his life to an oppressive state. God knows what you're experiencing. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. I know their sorrows. Look in the next verse. Look at these verbs again. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He says, look at the verbs. He says, I have seen their affliction, I've heard their cry, I know their sorrow, I am come down to deliver them. Now, God's everywhere, right? There's no, no place that God's not. But here he's using this very powerful metaphor. He says that although God's everywhere, he says, I'm coming down in a personal way to personally lead them out. That's the reason he appears here in a burning bush. I've come first to deliver them and then to bring them somewhere better. God says, I'm going to take you out of the place where you're a slave and I'm going to take you somewhere that you can be free. Now again, as Christians, we often take the first and leave out the second. Say, God, if you would just forgive me for my sins, if you would just you know, get me out of this jam that I'm in, that'd be good enough. But of course, that's not good enough for God. God says, I've got a bigger plan for you. (laughs) I don't just want to rescue you from your current situation. I want to use you for something else. I want to take you somewhere better. God doesn't just save you from sin. God saves you for service. As I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them to the land of Canaan, the land that he had promised to Abraham. Verse 9, now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He says, Moses, I know that you tried this before, and it failed. He says, but I want you to come now. Because I am responding, and I will send you. There's our last little verb. God says, look, I've seen your affliction. I've heard your cry. I know your sorrow. So I've come down to bring you out, and now I'm sending you. That's your biography if you're a Christian. God knows you. He knows what you're going through. So he's come down to rescue you and then to send you out. So go, bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Go rescue my people for me. Verse 11, this is really the heart of what I want to talk about with the next four verses. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh 
and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. He says, God, you've got the wrong guy. Who am I to do this? You're talking about Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful country in the world. How could I go and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Of course, what's unspoken is, you know that I tried this before. You know that it was a catastrophe. What we'd look, if we had time to look in chapter 4, is later Moses would say that he stutters. He's not a good speaker. They're not going to listen to an 80-year-old has-been that they think is a sellout to the Egyptians. And when God sends you to do something, you say, God, I can't do it. Who am I? What makes me so special? What makes me so good? You know, there's somebody in your life that doesn't know Jesus, and you say, you know, they're never going to listen to me. Who am I to talk to them? God lays some service on your heart, something that he wants you to do. And you say, who am I? I'm not gifted in that area. I'm not, you know, nobody's going to respect me. Nobody's going to pay any attention to me. I don't have anything worth giving. Who am I? And that qualifies as entirely the wrong question. Look at God's answer in verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. God does not say, Moses, relax. You're a much better speaker than you think. You know, you're so charismatic. You're so friendly. You're so smart, Moses. That's not what God says. Moses says, who am I? And God doesn't say, well, you're just great, Moses. You're swell. You know, you're so special. I need you so bad. I'm so lucky you're on my team, Moses. Thank you. That's not what he says. What does God say? He says, certainly I will be with thee. What is it that qualifies Moses? Well, it's not Moses' brain. It's not Moses' mouth. It's not Moses' hand. It's not Moses' feet. It's not Moses' education or his friendships or his personality. He says, the reason that you are the one to do this is because I will be with you. Now, God has never sent you anywhere that he was not willing to go with you. So when you say, what is it that qualifies me of all people to do this? God says, you've got entirely the wrong idea because you're still thinking that you're going to do this. What had he said before? He said, I have come down so that I can deliver my people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And then he says, Moses, you go and you deliver my people. Now, who's really doing the heavy lifting here? We talk about Moses parting the Red Sea. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses couldn't part the Red Sea any more than you or I could go down and part the waters of the beach, right? You go stomp, make some splashes. Say, I've got a plan. I'm going to throw a rock into the water and raise the level up of the water. Well, good luck. You go and you say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm really going to change this person. Ooh. Well, good luck, right? That's a hard rock to roll. So you go and you try to talk to some person and you're splashing water around. Moses goes, you know, and he turns the water in the Nile River into blood. Moses didn't do it. 
Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses didn't crush Pharaoh's army. God says, I will be with you. Whatever it is that God has sent you to do, it doesn't matter if you're an 80-year-old has-been killer, wanted for murder in all of Egypt. If God is with you, God's going to do the work. God's going to do the heavy lifting. And this man, Moses, who is wanted for treason, when God is with him, can march right in to Pharaoh's palace and say what he needs to say. So why is it that we refuse to do things that we know that we're supposed to do because we make up excuses for it? Every excuse that you've got for why you can't get serious about what God wants you to be serious about has to do with you. Say, well, I can't do this. You know, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough talent. Well, what if you took the mindset that all the things that you do are really, you're just a glove and God is the hand. I've got some gloves at my house and those gloves cannot pick anything up. They're very weak gloves. Nice gloves, they're leather, you know. Got some fiberglass on them from all this insulation and everything, but they're still, they're still good gloves. But they cannot pick anything up. And can you imagine if I went in there one afternoon to the garage and I said, okay, gloves, we're going to go do some work today. And the gloves said, oh, Justin, we can't. We're not strong enough to pick up a shovel or hold a drill. We just can't do it. That's dumb. They're gloves. I'm going to put them on and then they can pick up whatever I can pick up. You go... And God comes to you and God says, hey, don't you think that it's about time that we, whatever. And you look at God and you say, I can't. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. You know, you go and uh, we did this ramp this week. Can you imagine if I had gotten my drill and my drill said, wait, stop. I don't even know how to build a ramp. You're going to twist when I push on your button. You're going to push. We're going to go where I put you. You look at God, you say, God, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I can't do it. And God says, you need to start to realize that it's not you doing it. He says, surely I will be with you. And if God's with you, what is there that you can't do? I told you already, my gloves can do whatever I can do when I put them on. You can do whatever God can do when God is using you to do it. So do you believe that God can change people's hearts, that God can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people, (laughs) that God can conquer whatever the problem is in people's hearts? Well, then, if you let God use you wherever he sends you, he's going to do it there. Wherever God sends you, you are not alone. Charles Stanley says that the secret to the Christian life is to obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Say, God, you sent me here. You're responsible for this from here on out. So he says, what am I going to do? How am I going to do all this? And God said, certainly I will be with thee. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you can do. But when we look at this burning bush, it is that I will be with thee. So Moses himself becomes a kind of burning bush. 
says, what kind of a bush am I? You're the bush that's going to be lit on fire by the fire of God. You look and you say, God, I can't speak for you. I don't have the right words. I don't have the right things. But if the Spirit of God lives in you, then why not let him do the burning? You know, the bush was not consumed. The bush was not providing fuel for the fire. Moses was not the source of God's strength. We got it completely backwards. He says, further, this will be a sign for you. This will be a token. It's the same word used for miracle later. He says, here's the miracle that I'm going to show you. When you have brought forth the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The miracle, the way that you're going to know that it was me and not you and not anybody else, is that you're going to come back to this place where you were before. And this is, of course, Sinai, where he will receive the Ten Commandments. This is Sinai, where he will see God. And... Uh, For the full depth of that, we're going to have to wait a little bit. We're not going to be able to get to that today. Verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Moses says to God, Look, when I come and I tell them that the God of your fathers has sent me, they're going to ask who he is. In the in Hebrew, in the Eastern cultures, your name was not just your name. Your name was your identity. It's who you are. So, you you know, names have meanings, and you would sometimes they would wait to name somebody until they were older uh, to try to figure out what their personality was like and give them a name that matched who they were. So when he says, "What is his name?" they're saying, "Who is he?" What will I say when they ask that? Excuse me. Verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. What is the name of God? What is his identity? We call God uh, Jehovah. That's not really right. There's no J sound in Hebrew. Uh, in the Middle English, J made the Y sound, and so Yehovah became Jehovah, the way that we spell it. But the, he gives God, he gives him this name, which is uh, modern scholars trans, uh, give the vowels as Yahweh instead. But that is the Hebrew word for am, basically. So when he asks God what his name is, who are you, God? He says, I am the one who is. I am the one who will be. I am. See, the funny thing about you, the funny thing about me, is that we cannot really say I am. Because we're always changing. We're always in this process of becoming. You're not the same person that you were yesterday. Yesterday, you weren't the same person as you were before that. You're not constant. You're constantly shifting and changing, hopefully getting better, although maybe not always. But God says, I am. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for God to change, God would have to get better or worse. And he couldn't get any better, and he's not going to get any worse. God's the same constantly, eternally. You exist because of some, you know, different reasons, but ultimately you you exist because God made you. You exist because of your parents. They exist because of their parents. They exist because of their parents. All of us have a derived existence. 
One of the strongest arguments for the existence of God is called the cosmological argument. It's uh, often kind of misquoted. It says everything has a cause, so the universe must have a cause. That's kind of a lame argument, but it really goes like this. If I throw a baseball at that window, and that window breaks, why does that window break? That window breaks because that baseball is in that window at that same moment. All causes and effects happen at the same time. So at the same instant, that baseball's in that window. Why is that baseball in that window? Well, because before it was held up by certain momentum and different things here. Why did I throw it? You know, you get here. I threw it. It was thrown because my hand was applying pressure to it at the same moment that it moved. My hand was applying pressure to it because this and my muscles and, you know, all the way down. Well, if everything must be caused by something else in that same moment, then there has to be something that's holding everything together. And that thing that's holding everything together has to be in all places, because it has to be holding everything together, and it has to be all-powerful because it's doing everything. And so what is everywhere all the time that holds all things together? Well, uh, John 1 says, by him are for, for him are all things, and by him all things subsist, all things hold together. So the cosmological argument of God says that basically at the very bottom, something is causing all things. It's a very kind of tight philosophical argument, but it, it also refers to this idea that God is uncaused, that God is the cause of everything else. Everything else is caused. But God is the I am. He said unto the children of Israel, say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. The one that always is and always will be. I am. The self-existent one, the one who causes himself and causes all things, has sent me. Verse 15, and God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you, and this is my memorial unto all generations. He says, tell them, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent. This, the I am. When you see Lord in all caps like that, it's I am. It's, it's, it's Yahweh in the Hebrew. It says, this is what you'll say. I am God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me. So when you are faced with being sent by God, you say, well, I'm just an ordinary bush. Now I'm just a, I've got some thorns. I've got some flowers. I'm just a regular old bush. How on earth? Am I supposed to speak for God? It's the fire. You may be frail, you may be weak, you may be unreliable. But the one who is with you is the one who is above all things. The one who's through all things. The I am. So whatever arguments you've got, you say, God, I can't do this because... Blah. Do you know God knew that was going to happen before it did? And you know, God knows how it's going to turn out. And God knew the kind of person that you were going to be because he made you that way, and then he called you to do it. 
So whatever it is in your life that you know that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing, whatever excuse that you've got, the argument is always very simple. Moses, the next chapter, is going to say, God, I'm not a good speaker. And God's going to say, well, who do you think made your tongue? If I wanted to make you a new tongue, I could make you a new tongue, but I think you're going to do fine with the one that you've got. When you go to God and you say, God, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too this, I'm too that. God's answer is the same as it was to Moses. Surely I will be with you. And if the I am is with you, if the eternal self-existent one is with you, what's the rest of it? The rest is just paperwork. You say, well, you know, I can't give up this sin in my life. I'm just... I need it. And God says, I am is with you. (laughs) You don't need anything. Let me show you who doesn't, let me show you what need is. You need me. You exist because of me. You don't need it. Say, God, I'm too weak. Let me show you what strength is. See, if dependence on God is our goal, then weakness is an asset. If you really want to know God and really to be dependent on God, well, the weaker you are, the better. Because your strength draws you away from God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rejoice in my infirmities. He says, I like being weak. Because then the power of God can be shown in me. So today, wherever you are, whatever your situation is, I believe that God has something for you to do, something that matters. And maybe you've got all kinds of excuses about why you can't or you shouldn't or whatever. But if it's what God has for you, then he says, I am with you. And honestly, what objection do you have that God's saying, I'm with you, you are a glove, I am the hand? What objection do you have that can stand up to that? All the reasons that you can't, it's God's strength doing it. All the reasons that nobody's going to listen to you, it's God's voice coming through you. All the reasons that you are not qualified, it's a good thing that you're not the one to accomplish it. So as we stand this morning and our musicians come forward, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. You do stand today give your heart to Jesus. You say, I can't do it. Maybe you can't do it because God is not with you. He's willing to be with you today. He's willing to come into your heart if you believe that the frailty of humanity met the fire of divinity on the cross and that death could not hold him. That Jesus died in your place and rose again so he can be with you even now. So your life can be different so you can change. That is it.